One of the most alarming headlines today that few are even aware of is the efforts to weaken America's UN Security Council veto power under the Biden administration. It is possible these and other efforts will set the stage for the invasion of Israel at the Battle of Armageddon. And we will analyze these events from a prophetic perspective on this edition of End of the Age. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Dave Robbins with End Time Ministries. Thank you so much for joining me on this edition of End of the Age. One question that we have never, here at End of the Age, that we have never been able to give a conclusive answer to is how are the world-governing armies able to invade Israel at the Battle of Armageddon? I mean, won't the United States be able to protect them with our UN Security Council veto power? Well, that's a question that I want to raise today because the Biden administration is currently flirting with weakening our UN Security Council veto power in that instead of just vetoing a UN Security Council resolution, which we have done many times, we would have to justify a veto. Big difference there, which makes the United Nations much more of a fully functioning world governing body and potentially allows for the invasion of Israel at the Battle of Armageddon. Now, this is a potential here, so possibility. Now, let me explain. I'm going to go off into the prophecy. I'm going to talk to you about the veto, and then I'll talk to you about what's going on in the news. And then before today's program is over... I'll give you an end-time scenario and how it might play out. So prophecies foretell the establishment of a world government just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. A clear understanding of Revelation 12 and Revelation 13 about the world government and the United States standing with Israel, Revelation 12, 14. Both of these chapters have allowed us to be absolutely sure of two things. Number one. The United States will stand with Israel and protect Israel from the world government in the end time, at least during the final three and one half years, all the way up until the Battle of Armageddon. Number two, the United States will not be part of the world government, therefore will not come under the full reign of the Antichrist, which I'm very, very, very thankful for. Now, Whether Republican or Democrat, the United States has already for decades been protecting Israel from the world government uh, using our UN Security Council veto power that we got after World War II. And I'll explain that in detail in just a moment. But the thing is, where in our UN Security Council veto power, we could actually veto any UN Security Council resolution 
And that's how we've been protecting Israel. But what happens at the Battle of Armageddon? During the end time, we know we're going to protect Israel. But what happens at the Battle of Armageddon that the UN armies could come down again, led by Russia, according to Ezekiel 38, will come down to Israel to the final battle on earth. Now, I want to fill you in on some details before I get to my prophetic scenario at the end. The UN Security Council veto power. I, I, I'm not sure everybody fully understands that. So I want to make sure that you do, because there are huge things happening right now in the news. The United Nations is the only structure for one world government on the planet. So we need to discuss, what's the origin of the United Nations? Because this will help you understand the veto power. World War I, uh, also called the Great War, was the worst war the world had ever known. Prior to that, there, was, there had never been a war um, that would even come close to the amount of casualties that we saw in World War One. Close to... Um, World War I resulted in, what, 8.2 million dead. And the world said, hey, never again. Look, we can't, I mean, no. (laughs) Uh, It was from this that the establishment of a structure for global security was birthed, and that structure became the League of Nations. The League of Nations was formed in an attempt to ensure that another world uh, war would never be fought. Well, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, he championed the idea. He was a globalist as well. But the U.S. Congress hesitated because when they read the fine print, they realized that this was, the United States was going to be part of a world government. And they did not want to surrender U.S. sovereignty, so they voted against it. Well, because Wilson could not carry his own government into the League of Nations, it quickly dismantled and fell apart. So, that crisis of World War II, it wasn't big enough, was it? Twenty years later, however, World War II ended in 52 million plus casualties. So, of course, the cry for world security became louder than ever, and Franklin D. Roosevelt, he believed in a world government, he was a globalist, and he was responsible for the term Uh, New World Order being put on the back of our dollar bill, that was back in 1935. Well, at the end of World War II, Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt came together at Yalta in an effort to end all war. And it was during these meetings that the charter for the concept of a global government structure called the United Nations was written. Well, one key man, we've talked about this many times, but you've got to understand this when we get to the veto. One key American man, he was a plant here, and you'll get to that in a second, but one key American man responsible for the formation of the United Nations was Alger Hiss. He organized the American delegation, and he served as the acting secretary general at the first UN meeting, 1945. Alger Hiss also served on the steering and the executive committees, and was charged with the responsibility of actually writing the charter. Well, after playing such a dominant role in developing the charter of the UN and the founding conference, three years later, he was convicted in U.S. courts of lying 
to cover his activities as a communist spy. So, yeah, and look at all of his involvement in the United Nations. Well, previous to this, Alger Hiss had accompanied President Franklin Roosevelt to the Yalta Conference, where the carving up of Europe by the United States and Russia took place at the end of World War II. And, of course, at that time, Roosevelt was a dying man. I'm going to hold right here. Coming up to a break, I want to make sure you get this because, folks, this is playing out in the news right now, and many people I've talked to don't even have a clue what's going on. But it could affect all of us and set the stage for the possible invasion at the Battle of Armageddon. We'll get into it deeper on the other side of the break. Right now, there are tens of thousands of Jewish immigrants stranded in Ukraine as Russia invades city after city with no regard for human life. 3,000 Jews are ready to return to Israel today. The need for evacuation, shelter, flights, and emergency housing. Nearly $10 million. The Jews in Ukraine need your help. If half of you gave just $250 toward this need, it would be met in full today. Please consider giving to help Jews safely escape Ukraine. To give or learn more, go to endtime.com slash Ukraine or call 800 end time that's endtime.com slash Ukraine or 800-363-8463. Hi, I'm Judy Baxter. When Irvin and I got married, we didn't realize that our calling would be a prophetic ministry. Since we started End Time Ministries, there have been many times we weren't sure how we would pay the bills, but God has always provided. We started with the magazine, then went on radio and TV, and now we have the Jerusalem Prophecy College in Israel and online and End of the Age Plus. The mission has always been to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the End Time message. Through the years, my husband would say, we will see revival like never before in the last days. We are living in the end time now. Thank you for walking this journey with us and continuing in prayer. You are a part of the team. Thank you for your generous support. It is necessary for God's purpose. The most important thing is that you are ready when the Lord comes. Our hope is to help prepare you for that day. God bless you and we love you. So, at the end of World War II, at the Yalta Conference, President Roosevelt was a dying man. And so, uh, consequently, Alger Hiss, this, this communist spy, carried the bulk of the negotiations for America. Of course, what Russia did not win on the battlefield, she won at the peace table because her own agent, Alger Hiss, was assisting Roosevelt with negotiations. And this explains why Russia received so many concessions at the peace table at the end of World War II. Now, Alger Hiss was a a communist spy all the way back in 1945. Of course, there's probably none of them in our government today, right? Whoa, what a thought. Planted communist spies? Man, I'll move off of that one and move on. (laughs) So... Of course, Alger Hiss designed the United Nations to be a global 
Union of Socialist Republics. And, of course, the emblem of the Soviet Union, a globe with two sheaves of wheat around it. Think about it. With the hammer and sickle superimposed. You remember that uh, insignia. But the emblem of the United Nations, well, it's a globe with two olive branches around it. And when that insignia of the United Nations was created, the hammer and sickle was left off because obviously including it uh, would have been too obvious. And so, Alger Hiss designed the structure of the United Nations to ultimately become a world socialistic government. That's why there are so many socialists. It's, it's totally socialist today. Antonio Guterres, one of the number one socialists on the planet, he used to be the head of the Socialist International he was the president of the Socialist International. The um, Sustainable Development Goals. It's the socialistic blueprint of the United Nations to govern every single person on the planet. So socialism rules the ideology of the United Nations. You don't have to wonder, hmm, wonder what that uh, United Nations, the new effort coming out, it's socialistic. It's all based on wealth through distribution, it's what it's all about, folks. Control at the end of the day. But they don't have the teeth that they want, but they're working on it. Now, of course, Alger Hiss went to prison uh, for um, committing perjury. But the United Nations continued to be a structure for the one world government system. Now, after the United Nations was formed in 1945, everything didn't work out as planned. Because the Soviet Union received so much of Europe as the result of the Yalta Conference and as a result of Alger Hiss's actions <clears throat> that there was a lot of tension. You can only imagine. And for a while, it, 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 appears, it appeared as if Russia would end up ruling all of Europe and that communism would dominate Europe. Well, to keep that from happening... The United States of America led the Western powers into NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. NATO was a military alliance to counter the Warsaw Pact or the communist bloc of Eastern Europe. And we're feeling the effects of this today. Many of them, you've heard it in the news lately about NATO and Russia and Ukraine and everything, all the history of that. Well, as a result, the United Nations was rendered largely ineffective due to the... Cold War. But the United States was given veto power at the formation of the United Nations. And the members of of Congress were unwilling to approve a world government structure unless the United States had absolute veto power. Now, remember that statement right there when I talk about what's happening in the news with the Biden administration possibly yielding up some of that power. Okay, The Congress, they were given veto power because they were unwilling to approve a world government structure unless we had that veto power. But if you've got a globalist, a person who believes in world government in the White House, well, of course, they're going to be willing to yield up some of that veto power. And that's something we don't want to happen. Well, when the United States was given veto power... Well, of course, Great Britain, France, China, the USSR. I didn't say modern-day Russia. I said the USSR. A lot of people are saying that Russia should not have a part at the UN Security Council as one of the five permanent members because it was 
under the USSR, which really dissolved after the Cold War, right? So, but the original USSR demanded veto power as well. The five victor nations, uh, all five of these were victor nations of World War II, they were given veto power. And they form the big five, the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. They could veto almost anything the world government structure decided to do. So that's why the United States bought in, that our government bought into that. Because, hey, you can have your world government, but if we've got veto power over anything you do, yeah, we'll go along with that, right? The problem is, what happens if we get a president who's willing to yield up some of that? Well, now we get to my point for today. April 19th, just a few days ago, the Council on Foreign Relations published an article that said the Biden administration is flirting with dangerous moves to weaken the U.S. veto power in the United Nations. Unthinkable, right? Why would we do that? We're the United States of America, the land of the free, the home of the brave. Why would we yield up some of our U.N. Security Council veto power over the world government? Well, you do that when you have a globalist in the White House. According to the article, now this is the Council on Foreign Relations. I was almost kind of shocked when I saw it in there. But the U.N. General Assembly is debating a move to weaken our veto power in the U.N. Security Council. And the Biden administration is supporting the draft. But weakening the veto is clearly against U.S. interest, right? Well, of course it is. The United States has used its veto in the U.N. Security Council veto, uh, Security Council 14 times since the, two, the year 2000. And 12 of those 14 were exercised to protect Israel from biased and destructive resolutions by the United Nations. Why would the United States even think about yielding up that power over the United Nations? Well, again, it depends on who you, the ideology of the man in the White House or the people that are pulling his strings, right? Well, now the Biden administration is co-sponsoring a UN General Assembly resolution that goes down the path of leading to a delegitimization of the veto itself. 44 countries at last count, are supporting a text that requires any country that exercises the veto to defend that veto in the General Assembly. So the problem is, is the Security Council having to report to the General Assembly. That's the thing. Right now, if they were to pass, let's say, a resolution against Israel that says, hey, Israel, and a false, total false narrative. Let's say they say Israel has been the perpetrator of all of this violence on the Temple Mount, and we need to send um, troops in from around the world in there to handle Israel. Well, at this point, the United States could just say, nah, we're going to veto that, and not raise their hands for the resolution, voting on the resolution, and it wouldn't pass. There has to be a consensus. But what they're trying to do now, and this is just a step in that direction, would be to say, hey, you have to, um, if you have, uh, want to 
veto a resolution, you have to justify that resolution in the eyes of the UN Security Council and the General Assembly. Well, now that's a problem. Because instead of us just saying, no, we don't want to do it, we've got to justify it. And if we can't justify it, then they've got to work around white, right? It's weakening our power with our veto. So it is one step in the long process that is meant to change the way the Security Council works. Eventually by adding members and removing the veto or making it subject to the override by the General Assembly. This is what our original, back in 1945, this is why our government said, no, we've got to have a veto power. And this is why Woodrow Wilson's government would not support the League of Nations because they read the fine print and said, whoa, 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 hold up. We're not going into a world, we're not going to yield up that much of the America's sovereignty to a world governing body. So they said no. But now we've got a globalist in the White House. And he's flirting with doing this stuff. Now, we'll get to Armageddon here in just a moment. But a moment's, in the article, a moment's thoughts show how damaging this, this might be to U.S. interest. I mean, it's really kind of easy to see. The United, once you understand what the veto and the history behind it, the United States is a global power that has been involved in military activities repeatedly. Without our veto power... The Security Council could do literally anything, subject American troops to international criminal court jurisdiction. Right now, we could veto that. Subject the United States to new international treaties and agreements that impose standards to which we object and outlaw military activities that we consider vital to our national interest. Right now, we've got veto power over that. And outside the area of national security, adopt standards relating to parents, children, family law, gender rules that we find objectionable or that impose rules against insults to religion maybe that clearly violate the First Amendment. Without the veto, there is simply no way to protect against limitless actions against our national interest. Why? Ask yourself, why would somebody in our president of the United States why would, he be, why would he even be flirting with this, much less a co-sponsor of the resolution? And moreover, the long list of U.S. vetoes of resolutions that reflects the terrible, long-lasting bias of the United Nations against Israel as well. Since the 70s, we've protected Israel 40-plus times against U.N. Security Council resolutions, against that little old nation of Israel. The United Nations is horribly anti-Semitic and biased against Israel. And we have protected her. But now we're flirting with yielding up some of that veto power. I just, but if if you don't follow this stuff, it can go right by and you're thinking, what is going on here? And then a few years down the road, when the veto power is gone or they've got runarounds around it, We sit here and wonder what happened. This is happening right now, folks. Now, all Africa has said that um, a move to undermine the anachronistic or the, um, I shouldn't say like the old-fashioned veto powers in the Security Council have gained traction. A proposed new resolution before the General Assembly entitled Standing Mandate 
for a General Assembly debate when a veto is cast in the Security Council is an attempt to undermine the veto in a move likely to be supported by a majority of the 193 member states. As of last week, the resolution has now gained 57 co-sponsors and counting. And there's more and more. This was last week. U.S. Ambassador, our Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, told reporters that the United States was one of the co-sponsors of the resolution, spearheaded by a core group of member states led by Liechtenstein. This innovative measure would um, automatically convene a meeting of the General Assembly after a veto had been cast in the Security Council. Why would we do that? Let's go to the General Assembly and see if they approve of our veto. That's going to give the United Nations more teeth, folks. We don't want that. As negotiated back in 1945, she, uh, she pointed out the United Nations Charter entrusts the five permanent members of the Security Council the ability to prevent the adoption of a resolution through a veto, a mechanism that has long been the subject of institutional debate. A lot of people want to do away with that veto. Most of the world, actually. The United States, she said, takes seriously its privilege of the veto power. It is a sober and solemn responsibility that must be respected by those permanent members to whom it has been entrusted. When a permanent member casts a veto, that member should be prepared, she says. Now, I, I, this is our ambassador to the United Nations. Her name's uh, Thomas Greenfield, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield. She actually says when a permanent member casts a veto, that member should be prepared to explain why the resolution at issue would not have furthered the maintenance and international peace and security. Well, fine. You might be able, you might be, um, able to justify it. We, the United States normally justifies theirs. But we, don't, we shouldn't have to. If it's against our national interest... We just say, we're vetoing it, period. That's the, that's the power we were given when the United Nations was established. That's why we signed on. The General Assembly resolution on the veto, she declared, will be a significant step towards the accountability, transparency, and responsibility of all the permanent members of the Security Council, the members who wield its power. Now, in perhaps Russia or China, I might agree with this. But the problem is is it will include the United States as well. And I don't want other members uh, ve- uh, having resolutions against the United States, and they've got to run around our veto. I talked to you earlier about some of the things that they could enforce, and we would have no say. We don't want that. we got to make sure that we're in prayer about it. Whether it's a global pandemic, threat of war, or floundering economies, End-time events are happening around the world every day. How can you have peace in a world of such great uncertainty? With the End Time Magazine subscription, you can gain a deeper understanding of current events and its prophesied repercussions. End Time Magazine's exclusive content and prophetic insight allows you to understand where we are in the end time. It will give you peace when horrific news and events happen. 
when you subscribe today to End Time Magazine for 12 months for just $19.99. You can have hope for the future because you will understand what the Bible says about the time we are living in. You'll get access to exclusive articles like the Prophesied American-Israeli Alliance, End Time Do's and Don'ts, and Could School Choice Save America? Subscribe for you or a friend right now. Go to endtime.com or call 1-800-END-TIME. That's 1-800-END-TIME. The symbols and prophecies within the book of Revelation have perplexed Christians and unbelievers around the world. In his final work, Revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ Part 2, the late Irvin Baxter unlocks the mystery of the book of Revelation with in-depth analysis and commentary like you've never heard before. These comprehensive study tools, available for $299, will deepen your biblical understanding. Don't miss this special offer. Call 1-800-END-TIME or go to endtime.com. If your station only carries the first 30 minutes of End of the Age, go to endtime.com and click the watch button to continue today's broadcast. You can also finish up later by clicking the archive button. Stephen Zunes, who is a professor of politics and international studies at the University of San Francisco, who has written extensively on the policies of the Security Council, he told IPS that the General Assembly Resolution 377, adopted all the way back in 1950, gives the General Assembly the authority to make recommendations for a collective action in the event that the Security Council fails to act as required to maintain international security and peace, or a runaround, possibly, of a Security Council veto power, if they can't come to a consensus. Now, I'll talk more about the General Assembly Resolution 377 concerning the Russia-Ukraine war in just a moment. We're going to bring it right up to today. But he actually pointed out that the General Assembly has invoked this resolution on four occasions when a widely supported resolution was blocked by a veto. And it was uh, 1950 in regard to the Korean War, 1981, 1980 uh, regarding Namibia, and in 1997 involving resolutions, get this, concerning Palestine. Now think about that when I get to my... Battle of Armageddon scenario. So, there's some irony in the United States pushing for a more active role in the General Assembly, given that three of those four cases were in responses to a United States veto. Over the past 50 years, Washington has been responsible for far more vetoes than any other Security Council member. Why? Well, that's because the United Nations, they see them as becoming a world-governing body. And Russia and China are on the UN Security Council. So why wouldn't we want to veto most of their decisions? So yeah, and the United Nations resolutions, because they're so anti-Semitic against Israel, we've had to be the one that has uh, used our Security Council veto the power the most. Andreas Bummel, who is an executive director of the Berlin-based Democracy Without Borders, I've got a book upstairs on him um, that he wrote about a truly 
world governing body with no, uh, there are no roadblocks at all to it, that they would remove all the roadblocks and have a fully functioning world governing body. Andreas Bummel. He told IPS, we strongly support Liechtenstein's initiative that the General Assembly is to meet automatically each time a veto is cast in the Security Council. In other words, it needs to be negotiated or approved. And a veto must be justified. We shouldn't have to justify one. We should be able to say, hey, in the, in, uh, as far as the United States is concerned, to protect our ver- best interest, we veto that decision. Period. End of story. But that's not what they want. The UN's whole setup needs to be reviewed, they say. Everybody knows that it's old-fashioned. That's the big thing. Well, it was signed back in 1945. Some of these um, concessions that were given to the five victor nations, that was way back after World War II. Now here we are in 2022. We need to revise what's going on. No, we do not need to revise. We need to do away with it, period. I don't want anything to do with the United Nations. It could, that whole building could fall off in the Atlantic for all I'm concerned. Uh, we don't need a world government. We need God is what we need. And believe me, He's coming back to set up a world government. But until then, we've got to deal with this one. That's scriptural. But eventually, the permanent members, they say, need to be prepared to let go of their veto privilege altogether. That's what they really want. Now... Russia-Ukraine conflict. Let's talk about that. This weekend, I read an article, Jerusalem Post. The UN should implement an armed humanitarian intervention to help Ukraine. Well, how could the UN do that? Because all Russia would have to do is to veto that, right? But they're saying there's a workaround the veto. With the UN armed intervention, the Ukrainians would be uh, reinforced by troops drawn from around the globe. Now think of the implications of this, folks. As the war in Ukraine grinds on, Vladimir Putin has fully exposed who he is and what he's capable of. Now this is the United, uh, the Jerusalem Post article. He does not care a whit about causing massive and extreme human suffering. Much to the world's horror, he looks to be Hitler's evil twin with, with nuclear weapons, right? Putin craves power through hegemony. And he will not be satisfied by anything short of victory. And even a total victory in Ukraine may not preclude his invading additional countries. Odds are that he will not stop at either the Russian people or the, um, until either the Russian people or the international community stops him. And the former is not likely in the foreseeable future, the Russian people stopping him. So the U.S. and its NATO allies have generously supplied armaments, and funds to the Ukrainians, and impose tough sanctions on Russia. But as the savaged corpses strewn around Bukha and elsewhere in the Ukraine demonstrate, the aid has thus far not been enough. According to the Jerusalem Post article, while such assistance should of course continue, another tactic is also available for use without propelling NATO and Russian military pilots into dogfights. That is a United Nations armed humanitarian intervention organized on an emergency basis. Now, up until this point, the United Nations has been a paper tiger. They haven't done anything to stop this, right? They couldn't because Russia could just 
veto it. But the Jerusalem Post article says it is a real option that neither the media nor policymakers are discussing, at least not out loud. It is normally the Security Council that authorizes this kind of a measure. But Russia is a permanent member of the council. And they would certainly exercise its veto against the intervention. However, a legal mechanism exists. I'd never heard about this until I started studying this. A legal mechanism exists to do an end run around a deadlock UN Security Council in this situation. And it is aptly called Uniting for Peace, the UN Security Council Resolution 377. I talked about that earlier, remember. And it enables the General Assembly to authorize and deplore an armed intervention of peacekeepers to halt atrocities and hostilities in war-torn nations. On this occasion, there is reason to believe that the mechanism may ultimately garner the necessary General Assembly support and that the body has already invoked Uniting for Peace to meet in emergency special sessions and pass resolutions condemning the invasion. This just happened a couple months ago. Demanding protection of um, civilians and insisting on Russia's immediate withdrawal from Ukraine. But obviously it's not, it, it didn't it come to nothing because they're still, they're still there. Russia hasn't pulled out, right? So the General Assembly seems primed for taking United for Peace to the next level. And this is what we've been talking about with our U.S. US ambassador to the United Nations um, uh, where we were co-sponsoring this, um, that we would need to justify our veto power. They're all talking about the same thing. Some friendly public and government pressure might decisively more move the assembly to do a sooner rather than later. But with a U.N. armed intervention, the Ukrainians would no longer be fighting it out alone on the battlefield. They would be reinforced by troops drawn from around the globe, dedicated to the deliverance of Ukraine and the defense of democracy. Now, you understand what's going on here. Without a UN Security Council resolution, if the UN UN Security Council was in lockdown because they couldn't come to a consensus, or Russia had vetoed something, they're saying the General Assembly, because of Resolution 377, the Uniting for Peace, that there could be an end run around that. And in the end, perhaps no better case can be made for intervention by than by reiterating Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky's anguished, biting words of the UN Security Council, are you ready to close the UN? Do you think the time of international law is gone? If your answer is no, then you need to take to act immediately. Intervention through the Uniting for Peace should now be that action. Now, with that said, imagine Israel and the end time scenario. Imagine how is it going to come to pass that the United States has protected, let's say with our veto power, or, or, and or militarily, but with our veto power at the UN Security Council, like we have 40 plus times since the 70s, and 
it comes down where the international community wants to invade Israel at the end of the final seven-year period. How is that all going to work out? Well, let me give you an end-time scenario. You have to consider that the Sixth Trumpet War, as described in Revelation 9, 13 through 18. There have been two world wars. The solution to each of them, okay, world government. The League of Nations after World War I, the United Nations after World War II. But the United Nations still is not a fully functioning world governing body like they want because the crisis were not big enough to get the world uh, powers to yield up their sovereignty. The United States, France, Great Britain, Germany, or, uh, China, and Russia all wanted veto power. They were not willing to finally yield up their sovereignty. But there hadn't been a big enough crisis yet, right? World War III is coming. On the heels of that, when 2.7 million approximately people have been killed, one-third of the world's population, this is all biblical, folks. This is Bible Prophecy 101. Revelation 9, verse 13 through 21. There's a war coming that will kill one-third of the world's population. On the heels of that war, we w- the cry for peace will be worse than deafening. Nations will yield up their sovereignty and their armies to the United Nations, this world-governing body, in an attempt to never have another world war. And there, guess what? There will never be another world war after that. There will be the Battle of Armageddon, but that will not be a world war. That's going to be centralized right there in Israel. So, the Sixth Trumpet War happens. Either just before or just after that, the peace agreement. In our opinion, again, speculation. The war would happen first, then the peace agreement. Again, I'm speculating on that. I don't know. I can't prove that scripturally, so I can't tell you. But from all that we can see, the peace agreement, that the, the international community would look at Israel and the Palestinians would say, okay, we're done messing around. You guys are going to sign a peace agreement. The peace agreement, if it, when it has the characteristics of the biblical one, that would start the final seven years to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the Battle of Armageddon. Then there's, the, then there's a Temple Mount sharing arrangement. And Israel will build her third temple and resume sacrifices. All the while. Even now, the world government and the world religion is being established. It's happening now, folks. That will be the, it's coming to the culmination of it, where it will be a fully functioning world governing body. And that's what we're talking about right now. Imagine if there was no nation that had a veto power. You imagine what kind of power the United Nations would have at this point if there were not five nations that had veto power, what they could do to Israel or what they would attempt to do to Israel with no veto power? Well, we'll continue with my end time scenario when we get back. I've been part of the end time family from the beginning over 30 years ago when my parents, Irvin and Judy Baxter, began ministry from the recliner in our living room. My name is Jana Robbins. I have the pleasure of connecting with our incredible partners every day. Endtime is a small nonprofit that runs a high traffic website, a daily TV and radio show, the Prophecy College in Jerusalem, and more. Although we have less than 30 team members, we are able to serve tens of millions of people each month. 
We survive on the goodness of God and donations averaging about $50. If everyone hearing this message gave $22, our financial needs would be met for the year. If you only give to one cause per month, please consider partnering with End Time to help get the message of our soon coming King out to the world. Call us at 1-800-END-TIME to give today or go to endtime.com to become a monthly or one-time partner. So you have the establishment of the world religion, the world uh, government. At some point in the end time, halfway through the final seven years, the Antichrist and the false prophet will lead these organizations. The Antichrist will stand in a temple proclaimed to be God. That's when we will know he's the Antichrist. That event's called the Abomination of Desolation. Then during the final three and one half years, which is the Great Tribulation, that's when the mark of the beast is going to be doled out. Um, and many things happen during the tribulation, the two witnesses, uh, and, you know, there's persecution. Jesus said it would be the worst time of persecution the world would ever see. And at the very end of the great tribulation, the seven vials or the plagues of the wrath of God will be poured out. That's Revelation 16, 1 through 21. The great tribulation is not the wrath of God. That's the, the, those vials are poured out at the end, Revelation 16. The Great Tribulation is the wrath of Satan on the earth. We've told you that many times. Now, we're coming to the end here. When the sixth vial is poured out, the Great River Euphrates is dried up to, in, in preparation for the kings of the east to make their way down towards Israel for the Battle of Armageddon. Then in verse 16, the prophecy ominously says, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon, the, the plain of Megiddo in the north. And the Bible does tell us that the United States has protected Israel during these last three and one half years, all the way from now until then. But my question is, consider this scenario we're going through in this final seven-year period. How are the armies allowed to come against Israel if the U.S. still has a veto power? Now you understand the reason for my program today and everything that's going on with our veto. We need to at least consider the events that are occurring or being suggested in our headlines right now. Even Remember the Jerusalem Post article. We need, a, we need a United Nations military intervention because the UN Security Council can't make up their mind what they want to do. They've got a veto power. So we need to run around that. We need Resolution 377. Well, we need to consider either the U.S. veto power has been weakened to the point that we would have to justify our veto to the world government armies to move on Israel and that it has been, that our veto, the justification has been rejected or that the U.N. Security Council Resolution 377 has been implemented and that a workaround to our veto has been approved allowing the world government armies led by Russia to come to enforce U.N. resolutions um, such as the U.N. Resolution 2334, which states Israel's presence in the territories liberated by, uh, or I should say from Jordanian occupation during the 67 Six Days War 
including East Jerusalem, that it is a flagrant violation of international law that they're even there. And the resolution declares that Israel's presence in her God-given promised land of Judea, Samaria, and on her Temple Mount was illegal under international law. Resolution 2334 is on the books right now, folks. That resolution has been passed. And so these scenarios will allow the U.S. to retain our U.N. Security Council veto all the while leaving the possibility of an invasion of Israel looming in the background. You see what, see what happened here? And our president, I wish I, could, I wish I could teach Joe Biden a Bible study about prophecy and what's coming and why you should not do this. And come on, man. Isn't that his famous statement? Come on, man. I mean, if he knew, if, if he knew anything about Bible prophecy, I would hope the guy would say, we can't do this. Now, I, I mean... He is a globalist to the top of his head, to the sole of his feet, guys. And, wow. I mean, somehow or another, the international community and those armies will come down against Israel to battle. I do not know if this is the scenario. But I'm telling you, we have to at least consider this because this is happening right now. And now you understand the gravity of the United States and the co-sponsorship of the resolution in the General Assembly and the Resolution 377. You can look it up. Uniting for Peace, Resolution 377. Read all about it. That these proposals are being talked about in major news sources and this scenario of us having to justify our veto to the the, uh, General Assembly... We're co-sponsoring a bill, the United States is, to get that passed. I just, I got to shake my head. Because understanding Bible prophecy and just the, if you didn't understand Bible prophecy, the power of the United States over the world government with our veto power, why else? I mean, Woodrow Wilson's government knew that. Even when the United Nations under Franklin Delano Roosevelt and all, and that uh, charter was signed, we still required veto power. But now look how far we've come to the point where we would be willing to water down that veto power. I just, I'm, I, I, I'm almost speechless over this stuff. Will the United States be rendered helpless and forced to watch as the international community storms Israel at the Battle of Armageddon? It's it's a question we have never been able to really answer because the Bible says we will protect Israel against the world governing body. This is Revelation 12, 14. Israel's carried away on the wings of a great eagle, which she has nourished in her place for time, times, and half a time. During that final three and one half years, we will protect Israel. But something has to happen where the international armies will come down against Israel to battle. The international armies of the UN, they're going to invade Israel from the north. The battle will be joined at the plain of Megiddo in northern Israel. Israel will fight valiantly against the world government armies. But the Israel Defense Forces, they're going to, they're going to have to fall back slowly but surely before the superior, superior firepower of the world government. Where's the United States at this point? 
I, I, I can't answer that. I doubt serious. I mean, I highly doubt that we would protect her during the final three and one half years and then join them and come down. The Bible doesn't say anything about the eagle coming down. In Ezekiel 38, it talks about Gog and Magog and uh, Togarma, and, which is Turkey, and Russia and um, Eastern, Europe, Eastern Europe, Gomer, and many different nations, Persia, Iran, coming against her. So we're not mentioned in those. And I, you know, I, I, don't, I, I won't be coming down. I know that. I'll be coming back with the Lord when he comes back to plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. But what about the United States? I mean, I'm watching the news. I'm reading until my eyeballs are falling out, everybody. And I'm telling you, there are many scenarios that are setting the stage for the final battle on earth. Resolution 2334, that's one of the first steps to Armageddon, saying that Israel, in the eyes of the international community, does not have a right to the Temple Mount, folks. In the eyes of the international community, it's a flagrant violation of international law for Israel to control the Temple Mount and the Holy Basin, East Jerusalem, and the West Bank. God gave them all of that land all the way back in Genesis 15. God gave Abraham and his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through that lineage, the promised land from the great river in Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates River. You understand Israel only inhabits just a very small fraction of the promised land by God. And the international community, which is driven by Satan himself, does not want them to even have that little sliver. Think about this. It's only about 250 miles, 250, 260 miles long, and about 50, 60 miles wide, Israel. It's, it's nothing. You can drive all the way across it in about an hour. And so it's just amazing to me because the international community driven by Satan, which I know this is all scriptural, but I, I don't know. I, I wish I could answer what happens to the United States at the Battle of Armageddon. My father-in-law, we, we prayed about it. We, we, we were researching and I still haven't been able to figure it out. But we thought that at some point the, the, either the veto power would be taken away or that it would be watered down to the point where somehow or another they were allowed to come. Uh, something could override our veto power. Something where they would be allowed to come down. Now I'm watching this stuff play out in the news, you guys. And it's just, it's happening so fast. Everything. That's a 2,000-year-old prophecy that, and a 2,500-year-old one if you go back to Ezekiel and Zechariah. And yet we're watching it play out right before our very eyes. And, of course, in in the Battle of Armageddon, the conflict's going to proceed with Israel retreating towards the capital of Jerusalem after days of exhausting battle, Israel's going to make her last stand right there in the Kidron Valley. I'll be standing there in September if you want to go with us. Call my wife, Jana. But, man, I, it, it's just all happening very, very fast. I'm sitting here reading this stuff over the weekend and thinking, you have got to be kidding me. This is a scenario that could actually play out at the Battle of Armageddon. And... You know, in spite of, uh, at, at the Battle of Armageddon, in spite of everything, of course, that's when the Lord's going to come back, plant His feet upon the Mount of Olives, and 
all of Israel is going to come out and notice that they're going to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And the Bible says in uh, Romans 11, 25, and 26 that that's when all of Israel will be saved at that point. All of Israel that's made it through the earthquakes and the Great Tribulation and the Battle, and the battle of Armageddon that has transpired up to this point, the Bible says all of Israel will be saved at that point. The rapture will have already occurred. They will live into the millennial reign as mortals. And we will. that's when the Lord will establish His kingdom here on the earth. And at that point, all this world government stuff, you're not going to worry about that anymore. That's done. The Bible says the kingdom, this would be um, in Revelation 11 where it talks about the seventh trumpet. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. No more world government at that point. We're not going to have to worry about that stuff. Because the saints will rule with Jesus Christ as kings and priests for that thousand year period. But up to that point, we're going to have to deal with the world government. And you know how I'm dealing with it? I'm trusting God. I'm not worried no more about the Antichrist than I am about anything else. I'm trusting God. I'm relying upon God because I'm going to spend eternity with Him. None of this world government stuff I'm telling you about is a surprise to God. God wrote the Bible. That's God's Word. God knew about this stuff before He ever created this world. He knew this was going to happen. What is He doing? All of these events in the end time are setting the stage for the greatest revival the world's ever known. The reason I told you this today is because we're just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible says all of these things are going to play out just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It puts a sense of urgency in me. I need to be getting my life ready. If I'm not, if I wasn't serving God, you couldn't keep me from going to a church, turning my life over to God and saying, you know, disciple me. Tell me what I got to do to be a Christian. I want to live for God because when that trumpet sounds, I want my feet to leave the ground. That's the most absolute, most important thing in all of our lives, folks. So God bless each and every one of you as you prepare for that day because I'm telling you, the events in the news are setting the stage for these end-time prophesied events. God bless. This has been End of the Age, brought to you by the faithful partners of End Time Ministries. If you're not currently a partner with End Time Ministries, or if you would like more information, we invite you to call us at 1-800-END-TIME. That's 1-800-363-8463 or visit us online at endtime.com.